0: We're reading from Romans 9 and verses 14 to 29. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort but on God's mercy for scripture says to for scripture says to Pharaoh I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does God, does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay, some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one and in the very place where it was said to them you are not my people they will be called the children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel Though the number of the Israelites will be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been like Gomorrah.
1: Thank you so much, Faith. Brilliant. Thank you. Well, we're looking forward to exploring this passage together. Um, You can look back and see um, other studies in Romans 2 after this one if you'd like to, and chain them all together and see the glorious message that is being unfolded here. Well, the passage we're looking at this morning is from the second half of Romans chapter 9. And the chapter as a whole comes on the back of chapter eight, where Paul shows us how glorious salvation by God's grace alone is. And then Paul turns in chapter nine to address the obvious question. If God's word is so powerful as to reveal the glory of God, why is it that people who have seen God's glory still reject him? People like his fellow countrymen, the Jewish people. Does their rejection of God mean that God's word has failed? And last week, we saw that God's word has not failed. And the reason why not all Israel are saved is because not all Israel are chosen by God. God chooses those who will respond to it. So Paul introduces the doctrine of election and it's an uncomfortable doctrine. But someone once said to get cross at the Bible because parts of it offend you is to assume that God's view must always agree with yours. And that's one of the challenges of this chapter. Election is a difficult doctrine to understand, but we need to listen to what God says about salvation, about his sovereign will and his mercy, so that we're humbled and not cross, reassured and not shaken and bold, bold about the great gospel message. I'm reminded of an incident written in the children's story, The Lion, The Witch and the Wardrobe. If you've not read it, it's a book about a magical kingdom filled with talking animals and trees and fantasy beasts who are all ruled by a wicked witch. Her spell over the land means that it's forever winter but never Christmas. And the book tells how four children, Lucy, Peter, Edmund and Susan, who live in wartime England, discover a wardrobe that links our world through to Narnia. It's not a true story, by the way, just in case you're wondering. Uh, But on entering the world of Narnia through the wardrobe, the children's adventure begins. And as the book goes on, we learn how a rumour was growing that Aslan, the lion, the true ruler of Narnia, was coming to break the witch's curse. So the rumours grow into stories and the stories into reports and the reports into into a real life invitation to see Aslan. But one of the children, Susan, when she discovers that Aslan is a lion and not a man, she asks, is he quite safe? And says, I feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Mr Beaver responds, safe, said Mr Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. Now I remember reading that for the first time as a child and being a little bit disappointed. You see, I didn't want an unsafe Aslan. I didn't want an Aslan who could scare people. I wanted Aslan to be approachable, not mysterious. I wanted Aslan to be what I wanted him to be. And many Christians today are stuck in that place when it comes to God. We want a safe God. We don't want a God who sends sinners to hell. We don't want a God who says adultery is a sin. We don't want a God who commands our time, our attention and focus. It's much more convenient and safe to think of God as being the way we want him to be. And in many ways, that is the reason why we need to read these verses today. Romans chapter nine has been uncomfortable to Christians throughout history because they tell us what we don't want to hear about God. That God is unsafe, untamable, sovereign, powerful and dangerous, but God is good. So the invitation for us is to listen. And I hope as we listen, we'll be humbled as we see the scope of God's mercy reaching out to sinners who are just like us. Well, let's look at our, let's look at our passage together now. So in the second half of chapter nine, Paul continues to take us through his question. Has God's word failed? And he starts by anticipating the next objection, which is this. Isn't God unjust to save some, but not all? And that's our first point. Isn't God unjust to save some, but not all? Well, Paul's answer is, we need to look again at God's mercy from a different perspective. Turn with me to verse 14 uh, to 15. They say this. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. In answering the question, Paul quotes from a place in the Bible, Exodus 33 verses 18 to 19 where Moses pleads with God to continue to be present with his people, even though they had abandoned him and made a golden calf to worship instead. And in reply, Moses is ple- in reply to Moses' pleading, God promises not to destroy the people for their idolatry. But then Moses wants reassurance of God's mercy. And so he says to God, show me your glory. Essentially, he's asking for God to reveal the essence of who God is. He wants to see the nature of God that makes God, God, a fuller revelation, a fuller reassurance of who God is and his mercy. And that's why God says in response in Exodus 33, verse 19, it's climactic. The Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And at first reading, it sounds like God is saying, well, you know, I'm just going to have mercy when the fancy takes me. Uh, You'll never know when. Which would make him arbitrary and unpredictable. But that's not what God means. And this is where we need to view God's mercy from a different perspective. Not from our human way of viewing things, but from the divine perspective. This declaration in Exodus 33, repeated again in our passage, Roman 9's, 9 conveys the truth that God will always show mercy because that is God's nature, his character. Mercy is not something he has, mercy is something that he is. And in showing us these uh, these verses Paul invites us to see salvation from a different perspective to satisfy God's justice we should all be condemned but mercy is so God's nature that knowing our rebellious state we should be astounded that he saves anyone let alone the billions that he has saved throughout the ages and as verse 16 says it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Let me illustrate it with uh, um, an illustration from last week, uh, but this time I'm going to add a little bit more detail to help us see from God's perspective. Imagine you've been caught up in a disaster at sea. Uh, The year is, well, let's say 1856, and the ship you were on was called the HMS Scoundrel. It was a ship full of criminals bound for the hell of prison in Australia. And let's imagine that you are one of those aboard who are who were fairly tried and found guilty for your crimes. So then the HMS Soundel sinks, and you're one of the many convicts floundering in the sea. And just as you're about to drown, a lifeboat pulls alongside and rescue you. It rescues you. You're saved from the ocean. You don't deserve it, but the mercy of the lifeboatman reaches out to you and pulls you out from certain death. In the same way as that convict floundering in the sea, we are undeserving sinners who have no right to God's intervention in our eternal destiny. We deserve hell. We deserve God's wrath at our sin. And in the same way, that you, the convict, were saved from drowning by the mercy of the lifeboatman, Paul is saying that we are undeserving recipients of God's mercy as he saves us from eternal hell. And it means that rather than accusing God of being unfair not to save more, it's accurate to say that it's unfair that he should show mercy to anyone. It's unfair that anyone should be saved from sin by someone who is such a perfect, loving saviour. When looked at in this right way, we see mercy is God's initiative and not ours. That's why Paul goes on to help explain why God hardens hearts in verses 17 and 18. Let me read them for us. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. When God hardens someone, he doesn't create that hardness. That's really important to know. Rather, he confirms a person's original sinful desire to continue in their lives in their way without God. So when God hardens whom he wants to harden, it means that he withdraws his hand that restrains them from continuing in their stubbornness and allows them to go on into it, uh, go on in it. That's why when you look through chapters 7 to 12 of Exodus, what you see are two things, both how the Bible describes Pharaoh's own hardening of his own heart, his stubbornness going on and on wanting his world without God in control. And alongside that, the Bible tells us that God was withdrawing his restraint on that hardening, and he was allowing Pharaoh's heart to harden too. In a sense, God was hardening Pharaoh's heart in that way. And in seeing this, we must be both reassured and humbled. Reassured, because the thrust of these verses is that God does what he promises. As we saw last week, his word doesn't fail. God's word is his power to save this world and to reveal his plan of salvation to those whom he has chosen. And the reassurance is that God has reached out to us in his mercy to save us from our sin and to bring us into his light, even though we have never deserved that mercy. And this doctrine also humbles us because there's nothing so hurtful to our human pride, is there? Our inclusion into the family of God is not down to our ability or status or race or knowledge or connections. We are chosen simply because God loves us and has chosen to have mercy on us. It's a doctrine that also affects the way we view our fellow Christians. Today, one of the greatest sadnesses of our situation is that we're not able to meet together in person. And a reason for that sadness is that when we meet together, the underlying of of, of the, the meeting is that we are all on the same level. Whether rich or poor, black or Asian or white, male or female, young or old, Apple users or PC users. We're all sinners saved by God's grace revealed to us by his mercy and love alone. When we meet together. It's thrilling to see such a bunch of hell-bound sinners saved by God's mercy and grace alone. That's why we sing. That's why we rejoice. That's why we praise God together. That fellowship is a humbling reminder of the mercy of God at work in this world. And that's why if you're not in a small group, oh, you really need to be in one. Because if you're not, you miss out on a weekly reminder of God's mercy. God's mercy that gathers all sorts of people together under his love. It's also why if you've not committed to a church yet, you might be watching this online and not committed to a church. You might be reading it, um, might, be by, might be listening to this as someone who's been really hurt by church in the past and you're, you're, you're scared of getting involved again. But, you know, if we don't commit ourselves to a church, The danger is we can become proud and independent. We lose that reminder and we begin to think that church is there to serve us, not the other way round. And this doctrine does a marvellous work of humbling us. And God knows how much we need that daily. I I pray that as we consider the mercy of God on sinners like us, we would be humbled by it. But also reassured. And and let's praise him, rather than judge him as unfair. However, this doctrine does pose yet another question, which our second heading summarises. Doesn't election, which means God choosing us, mean we're a bunch of robots just doing what God tells us to do? It's a common objection uh, to what Paul is saying here. So isn't it great that God gets the question out in the open and addresses it? Look with me at verse 19 of our passage. It says this, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who is able to resist his will? Put another way, if God elects his children, then how can he hold unbelievers responsible if unbelief is as a result of God? hardening hearts. What I love about the Bible is that it's very honest to address this question and yet in reply it's also very honest about our limitations when it comes to the answer and there are two good answers to the question um, of this heading. The first answer says the question itself assumes that our understanding of this universe is as comprehensive as God's and therefore we're in a position to question god's ways that's the basic point that paul makes in verses 21 and 22 with the potter illustration simply put just as a lump of clay's ability to understand its own makeup and purpose and shaping is incomparably limited compared to the potters so too is our understanding of the complexity of god's sovereign ways compared to god's To ask the question is to highlight our ignorance. We know that we're not robots, because God holds all those who reject him accountable for their choice. Whilst at the same time, God has mercy on whom he chooses. That is a mystery, and I know it sounds like a catch-all answer, but to be fair, it's what the Bible says. Sometimes we, need to stop, uh, sometimes we need to know when to stop asking questions that are, abo- uh, that are above our pay grade and to trust in our merciful Father who understands this universe in a way that we never will do. But secondly, our world is one where God desires that both his wrath and his mercy are displayed. That's what Paul says in verses 22 and 23. So it says it says this. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? So, So Paul continues to use the example of the story of Moses and Pharaoh back in Exodus. And he shows us how it's God's plan and purpose to withhold his wrath on Pharaoh, instead sending plague after plague, message after message, warning after warning till the right time came. And when the right time came, God exploded his rich glory and mercy and saved his people by bringing judgment on the land in the last plague and bringing them out of slavery. And the consequence of God's hardening Pharaoh's heart is this. When the unbeliever like Pharaoh is, hardening, uh, is hardened to God, it actually brings glory to God's patience. When the unbeliever like Pharaoh is hardened to God, it actually brings glory to God's patience. And when the believer is elected to be in relationship with God, it brings glory to God's mercy. And as we read these verses, we have to just stand back and revere this is God's ways and plans. They're not simple. They're not easy to follow. God's ways are above our ways and his thoughts are above our thoughts. We go back to my opening illustration from The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, where Susan has to rethink her perception of Aslan. Just as Aslan was not a safe lion in the story, God is not a safe God in real life. And C.S. Lewis, as he was writing the story, was trying to help us see uh, who God is and and, and see an aspect, a facet of God's character. He is unsafe. But C.S. Lewis also wants us to see he is good. And he's good in a way that we could never understand goodness in its entirety to be. So whereas sometimes we want God to be good on our terms and in our way, it's better to realise that we must not try to tame God or expect him to be safe and dance to our tune. Because God is good, everything that happens in this world is purposed to bring glory to him and him alone. And in that sense, this passage serves as a reminder that we're not big and important. We're not as big as important as we think we are. Sometimes in our, modern, in our modern world, we can be so caught up in the struggles that we're going through that we forget our purpose and our place. That we're created for God's glory. And everything that happens in this creation brings glory to God eventually and in some way which means this world is not about us, it's about the glory of God. And I hope this chapter serves as an antidote to pride or self-righteous on one hand, and on the other hand, a a continuous self-pity and self-loathing, because with God, there is nothing in and of ourselves to feel superior about, or to loathe as though we ought to be more acceptable to God, because God chooses his children despite us, not because of us and it's humbling and comforting it's a mystery and it ought to confound us because it tells us God is bigger than we are and he's good and he's shown his mercy and his love do you know as we read this chapter i hope that we are so humbled that we're simply brought to that place where we confess our dependence on him and ask God to keep him and his glory at the centre of our lives. If you like, just recenter a bit like um, the, 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 the clay in the potter's hand on the potter's wheel. Uh, do you know, it, a, 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 a lump of clay when it's being shaped on the potter's wheel um, is shaped beautifully when it's centred. And in that sense, it's slightly taking the the illustration out of context, but it's it's a beautiful illustration of where God wants us to be. Centred around his glory, not our preferences, not our worries, not our desires, not our idolatries, but centred around his glory. Only when that happens, can he shape us beautifully and wonderfully. And as we do that, as we centre our lives around his glory, we will see that his will is for his children to know his mercy and the benefits of his grace. That's why Paul literally goes off on one at the end. Verses 25 to 29 underline the point of the whole chapter and bring it to a glorious conclusion. Those verses consist of quote after quote after quote from the prophets that promised God's word would go to the nations and save non-Jews too, people like us, from the hardness of our hearts towards God. Isn't that great? Verse 26 summarizes it all. In the very place where it was said to them the gentiles you are not my people there they will be called children of the living god it's wonderful isn't it there they will be called children of the living god god's word has not failed that's what paul's been going on about and therefore let's praise him for, for his unfailing word and his mercy that people like us, people with hardened hearts like us, can be called the children of the living God because that is what we are. That is what God has chosen us to be. And as his children, our purpose is to be called into his family and to bring glory to him. And our purpose also is to tell others about Jesus. What I love about this chapter is that it reassures us that his purpose in this world now is going and growing, that as people are called into the church to be his children, they're also called to do his will. And his will is that his name might be glorified as more and more people come to know him. People who were once not his people. Children who were once Not his children, but because he has mercy, they might one day become that. Let's praise him for his purposes. Let's praise him for his unfailing word. Let's praise him for his mercy that brings us into his family and lavishes us with his love and gives us that great status. Children of God.